Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for On the Money, presented by Embassy National Bank. I always like letting the music run on this. I like that song that they play. Where did you find that song? I got lucky. Just found it on the internet somewhere. Okay. Hope you're paying somebody for it. Anyway, welcome. This is uh, Joe Moss, moderator of the show On the Money, brought to you by Embassy National Bank. I'm the president at Embassy National Bank, and our goal in life at Embassy is to help small business be successful. Um, so we'll, on this show, we try to, to uh, bring in industry experts and talk about different uh, components of small business, give you all some hints as to what you can do uh, differently or better to help you, help you be a little bit more successful. Today, we've got Ed Cordell. And Ed is a, uh, a, a real industry expert in the small business world. Um, he's a, 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 a CFO for hire, I guess is the best way to say it, financial right. management expert. Uh, he builds strategies, teams, and value. So, Ed, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Joe. Um, Ed, um, you talk about being a financial leader for growth companies. Why don't you give us an idea of what some of your – experiences are, who they're with, what some of your big uh, uh, successes have been. Okay. And uh, we'll just start with that. Sure. Thank you. Um, well, I've been very fortunate to be a part of a number of uh, technology successes. And uh, that includes from electronics to human tissue engineering, radiation therapy, uh, and even a swallowable camera. So a swallowable camera. camera. We'll, we'll, I'm going to write that down. We'll be back on that one. <laughs> okay. Um, and so in most of these uh, situations, and, and just for background, I'm a CPA by training and spent my uh, requisite four or five years with Grant Thornton learning different industries and companies. And then was fortunate enough to get an opportunity to be a CFO and kind of learn on the job. And learning on the job means you better know where the cash is. So uh, the companies that I've worked with have been Video Display, Cryolife, Novost, Given Imaging. Um, is this a good environment right now for starting a small business? Well, I, I'm, I'm the eternal optimist. So uh, for me, it's always a good time to start a business. But I think now is particularly good. Um, the uh, uh, regulatory restrictions, et cetera, don't. Uh, don't make you second guess that at all? Oh, well, I always second guess the regulatory restrictions, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's like having a map. And so everyone has to find their, their uh, way of arriving at the location that they're trying to get to through that map. So sometimes roads are closed, sometimes there's flooding, there's places that you have to get around. That's the way I view regulatory issues. Um. And I agree with you. I think the money sources have kind of opened up a little bit compared to where they've been over the years. Um, and the regulatory environment is just the world we live in right now. Correct. And, uh, yeah, there's a cost to it, but you just got to figure how to, how to work within the system. And the money you find 10 years ago is going to be different than the money you might have available today. Mm -hmm. And the cost might be different. You know, there's interest rates, but not everything is interest. Sometimes it, there's an equity portion to that. Just um, depends on where you go. You mentioned um, you, you talk about uh, value and customer satisfaction. I'm always interested by the value creation uh, proposition. So, how does a how does a small company create value? 
And how do you define value in a small company? Well, first of all, I'm an accountant. So value to me is uh, margin and revenue growth. Because if you've created value, then you're going to have, you're going to retain your customers. You're going to bring in new customers faster than what your market might show. Um, so uh, margins are different in every business. Medical margins might be, you know, 70%. But electronic margins might be 10%. Mm -hmm. and, and, and to me, the value is what do most of your competitors bring in in terms of margin? And where are you on the pricing scale? You know, if you can be higher up on the pricing scale, then clearly you're delivering value to customers because they're coming to you because of a special uh, product or service that you offer versus someone else. So it's still possible in today's world to have create some uniqueness Uniqueness, yes. That's and uh, even though you might be in a commodity business. Correct. Do you have any examples of that um, where you've worked, where you've had a basically sold what you thought was a commodity but actually created some uniqueness? Mm -hmm. Well, um, let's just pick on electronics for a minute. Um, probably most, you know, maybe if you're younger, you're more comfortable with electronics. But I know that I would pay or I will pay more for a smartphone or some device that makes the sound better on my TV, mm -hmm. if someone is gonna deliver that in a fashion where it's plug and play. If I don't have to sit and read uh, you know, an hour's worth of owner's manuals to hook it up, then I'm gonna pay more money for that. There is always somebody who is willing to take the value over the money. And I think everybody would agree that most electronics are uh, wind up being a commodity. So well, it's, it's all in somewhat of the presentation of the electronic too, isn't it? Yes. And, and uh, so let's you know talk about some of my history in the medical device field. Um, you know, there are usually there's more than one way to diagnose an issue with the human body or to treat uh, you know this this uh, human condition. So creating the value is, well, what kind of time and what kind of effort does it take from the patient and from the physician to accomplish the same goal? As a patient, you're going to want to pay, you might pay more out of pocket if you can get it done faster and more convenient to you than waiting six months and having to apply creams and, you know, et cetera. Well, I'm, su I'm sure you're out in the community a lot, and um, I know you get involved in a lot of technology and high-growth companies. We'll get to that in just a minute. But just even within the community, the, the local restaurant, the uh, pizza joint, the gym, the dry cleaner, how, do they, how can they create value? Because you've got, you got one right down the street from them. Right. My, my first question would be, uh, what do your current customers see as the value that you provide? And what do the customers of your competitors see that they provide? Why would they choose them over you? You know, in retail, it's what we always heard. It's location. It's, you know, or how convenient are you to my drive home or to my drive to work or whatever it happens to be. Um, location, you know, you have to solve early on. But once you get to the providing of the service, you know, then I think it's, and this is, I challenge everybody, you know, you, you need to know those customers. Even as a financial person, I always want to go out and meet the customers and find out, you know, what my sales reps and my customers' feedback will be. Um, it depends on the business, on how you create the value. But you've got to find, as you defined earlier, the uniqueness of how you separate yourself from the competitor. And I think you've got to, you've got to do that over and over and over again. It's almost like you're selling a different product every time to a different customer. 
Uh, yes. I, I think you've got to, you, you might have to do it three different times in a year yeah. to keep yourself unique. Well, it's interesting you mention that because even, uh, let's say you're a dry cleaner. Uh, you mentioned that you got to define your location. Right. So what that would say to me, and then, and then you kind of set that on the side because within your location before you do your homework, you got to make sure you have enough business there in that location to make a living. And then once you're there, put location on the side, as you mentioned, and start deriving value within that particular location. Right. So you can't worry about what they're doing five miles five down miles. the road. You probably won't get those kind of people anyway, mm -hmm. unless you're in their drive to work or, uh, um, you know, unless you're on a major traffic route or something like that. So that would be uh, the dry cleaning business is a is a good business to challenge someone. You know, how many dry cleaners actually call someone who hasn't come into their shop for six months? Mm -hmm. You know, every time you open up an account at a dry cleaner, they ask you for your phone number. So they've got the information there. And if you were to look through that data and find out that, well, Ed hasn't come back in six months, let me call and find out why. Could be that I moved. It could be that they shrunk my suit. It could be that they didn't reattach a button. But I think that kind of data is important for a small business owner because then they can react to it. Um, and, and the same goes, uh, our bank does a lot of work within the hotel industry. Um, you get off on any given exit, you may have four or five different selections. But the one, uh, and, and you might go through a price comparison. Uh, you know, I want to stay in the $60 range. You probably have two or three choices within the $60 range, but once you're there, um, the hotel owner can can create a lot of value, as I found, just by being nice to people. Right. Making them feel like they're home. Um, and, and then you mentioned the, the phone call back. I, I guess the um, thing that, that comes to mind is that uh, uh, you got to treat every customer as if they're different. Mm-hmm. And each of them have their own needs, hot buttons. So you almost have, even though you think you may be selling a commodity product, you've got every customer represents a unique product in a lot of respects. In my mind, most retail locations today, because what has happened? We've got Amazon, we've got you know eBay, you've got all these online choices to buy your goods and services. So if I walk into a store... I have to feel that it's unique and I have to feel that I have a personal kind of, you know, relationship there. I'm not, you know, I mean, the days of going to three different stores to price shop are probably over. Um, do people still like going into shops? Oh, I think they do. Okay. I, I think uh, you still have, uh, I mean, it, it's some people like the personal attention and the personal interaction. Other people maybe go the other way. You know, they, they were like, I don't want to talk to anybody or see anybody who might uh, try to uh, rush my sale. But I think there's still a, a, a percentage that is always going to want to go for the personal touch. And I'm an old guy, obviously, but I like to see and touch something before I'm going to buy it. Like right. TVs, camera, uh, music stuff. I want to see and touch it before I buy it. I don't like returning 30% of everything I bring home or, or I order online because I don't like it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's interesting. Let's talk about um, a big part of small business, obviously, is money. Right. 
talk about um, we've talked a lot about starting up a business, but let's say you've already gotten the pieces and the parts in place and you're and, and, and you've got a good success record. You think that there's something here. Um, what are where are the different places these days that people can go for money? Mm-hmm. Give me an idea of where they ought to start versus what the ladder is. And then um, uh, we'll talk about um, what they need to have to show these people, to convince them that their business is the right place to, to invest money. Right. So let's start with where they find it and kind of where are the best places to go. Okay. Um, I think that most, even small business owners, should have several people that they can trust, that they can talk to about the markets and about their business, whether that's a CPA firm, accounting firm, uh, a bank, because even if they don't have lendable assets, which is something that your bank would look at, mm-hmm. you're gonna, you want them to be successful. You want them to grow and to continue to work with you. So you probably have connections with angel investors or minority investors or people who can lend outside of kind of the regulatory requirements. Now, and, and the question is just, what's the cost? Mm-hmm. So, so there's, there's money out there that people are looking to put to work other than just stock market investing. And they even like taking a part in a business. But you have to be very careful about making sure that it's well documented and that you're dealing with people that agree with your your way of operating your business. So um, dealing with what an angel investor or whatever, what do you have to have in place before you? How do you find those people? Mm -hmm. And then what do you need in place before you go see them? So... Most small business owners that I talk to or shops that I go into and I talk about their business because I'm kind of geeky like that. I like to do that. Um, you know, they know their business. They, they know their customers. They know what their average sales are. They know that they, you know, for example, they might make 50% of their profits in at Christmas season. And, you know, they, they know their business. And what I challenge them to do is to take that knowledge and invest the time to sit down to create the metrics. So... Let's take the dry cleaner, for example. Um, you know, how many new customers do they sign up per month? And then what is their estimate of old customers? Or how many customers are they losing per month? And track that over kind of a six-month period and test it out. That way, you know, that way they have metrics on what they know in their heart or their gut that their business is doing. So that's called what you refer to as the daily metrics report. Right. So help me with the definition. All the key indicators that drive their business. Key indicators that drive their business prioritized. So, you know, you, obviously any business you might could come up with 30 or 40, but you can't track 30 or 40 and react to 30 or 40. So I like to, you know, the question that people always ask is what keeps you up at night? You know, and it's usually three to five things. So you might have a number of indicators behind those, but I like to focus on no more than a half a dozen items. And they may not be financial items. Nope. They, in fact, I want to start with customers and market and revenue creation per customer or per hit or per, per package. We always get back to that customer thing, don't we? <laughs> Even accountants. <laughs> uh, and so often small business forget that. They get so right. immersed in the mechanics of it, they mm-hmm. forget about the customer. Right. Um, this is On the Money, brought to you by Embassy National Bank. Uh, we've got Ed Cordell here. He is a, um, a, a CFO. 
and he focuses on small business, uh, helping them build strategies, uh, teams, and value. And we're having a really good discussion about some of the fundamentals. We're talking now about a daily metric report, uh, which Ed is talking is the um, kind of the key items that run the day-to-day business. And, and you're suggesting that to be done daily. I suggest that it's done daily, and I suggest that you try to project at least three to six months in advance on what you what you think your business is going to do during that period using those daily metrics, and then compare yourself to that and update it every month. So you're talking about doing a static, assemble them, report on them, and then you're saying also forecast them. Forecast them and test them. Because, okay. because if you're forecasting them, then you're saying that, okay, I'm going to work this month on trying to retain 20% more customers than normally wouldn't come back every month. Or, or I'm going to try to have them come back in the store you know, more often than what they do. So track it. Okay. And it doesn't have to be anything dramatic. It doesn't have to take up 25% of your time. It could just be a small sheet you keep by the register or whatever. All right, so we're on that. We're talking about how to get in front of angel investors, and you talked about uh, the the daily metric reports. Obviously, to you, that's important to get in front of a, a angel investor. And why is that? Well, so uh, we know that personality a lot of times sells a story. Okay, so I mean, I, I could have a business idea. The person next to me could have a business idea, but if they can't communicate those concepts to an angel investor then the angel investor is going to glaze over and say, so why am I supposed to put in $10,000? You know, I'm not sure I know. So um, not everybody can present at the same path. If you've got all those metrics together and you know those metrics by heart, then in essence you have a scorecard that you can go to that angel investor and say, I've tracked my business. This is the trend that I'm on. This is why I need the additional money to expand my business and become more profitable. And... In that discussion, um, you've got to be pretty concise. I've had some of those discussions. They only have a couple of minutes. Right. If you don't win in the first couple of minutes, you might as well go home. That's why I'm saying three to six. Yeah. You know, don't get over six. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we're going through the angel investor, and how much of the company are they looking for these days? Well, that depends on how much money and what the value of the company is, obviously. But, you know, I think as a, as a business owner, you know, you don't want to lose control. I mean, we're not talking about people who have control of a company with only 5% of the ownership. Usually it's more than 50% or at least more than 30. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think most angel investors are looking for a higher return than they think they could get on parking their money in some other safe investment. Like so, CDs? Like C- that well, 0.5%? Well, so that's an easy return. <laughs> <laughs> but even if you're looking at, say, you know, well, I think I could make 4 or 5% on the, on the market. Um, you know, and, and I think that once you're into kind of an angel investor, you're also, you're just as interested in the story and the concept that you're investing in as you are on the return. So, uh, you know, I think it's got to be a minimum of three times what you think it could get in a normal investment. So if the market overall is returning 5 to 7%, then you're probably talking 15 to 20%. Um, the, uh, past the angel investor, um, is the jobs act, talk about what the jobs act is real quick, but then also, is that helping? Has that helped? Well, I'm not, I don't think I've seen it help now. You know, again, I'm just, uh, kind of 
talking to people who own small businesses and, and I'm dealing in the medical side. So, you know, I really haven't seen it have a, have that big of a positive impact. Um, but the question would be, you know, is, is your market or is your company or, or is there a niche that you can find in the jobs act that can help you take advantage of it? Um, the, uh, what are all these sites, the crowdfunding, right? Is that us? Is that good for small business? Or is that more not-for-profit? I mean, how do you view all that? Well, you know, a lot of startups today are not what we've been talking about with storefronts and with uh, services and so forth. A lot of the startups today are on, um, are on um, apps, you know, or, or some kind of online service. And I think that that is perfect for crowdfunding because you're in kind of the same marketplace. Um, you know, my... my uh, I've known several people who have been involved in kind of beta testing new products, and they do it just based upon their their willingness to invest a couple hundred dollars every six months or so to have new products delivered, and then they give feedback to it. Well, let's say 10 years ago, you know, to get something beta tested, you might have spent thousands of dollars with a company to go and do your testing, as opposed to now you can have real consumers. So again, that comes back to what's the market for new startups? And if you're if you're talking the non-traditional, you know, non-retail, non-storefront, it's probably a much better market now than than ever. And again, the crowdfunding part of it is, you know, people want to participate, and and it doesn't take five or ten thousand dollars. It takes a couple of hundred dollars, spread over several thousand people that are willing to put it in to to get the funding. But the message that you assemble for crowdfunding is that any different than the message you would assemble for any other sorts of funds? I don't think so, because I think it's knowing, you know, I mean, if you can develop a wonderful app, and let's say it's an organizational app, but if you, if the question comes back on, well, so who's going to download this app? You better have some, as you said, concise, succinct answers to say, this is, this is what the potential market is, and I think if I capture 5% of that potential market, we've got a success. Um, business owners that... Uh that are getting ready to do a crowd, uh, not a crowd fund, but a, a face, face-to-face uh, investment pitch. Oftentimes, um, I've talked to them and they say, "Well, I'm really not the person to pitch the product." They're kind of nervous because typically the the creator is more technical and not comfortable with pitching the product. Um, talk about what they, in particular, need to do to get prepared. Mm-hmm. Again, know your know your market, know your business, and know just the key facts of it. You know, don't get into the whole technical aspect. Uh, but but you know, you're right. There's some people who are such an engineer, or they're so ingrained to it that they can't describe it in 30 seconds or less, or a couple minutes or less. So I think that would be a great place to bring together some of your uh, uh, consultants or some of your business professionals, whether it's your CPA firm, maybe law firm, bank, and do some practice, maybe find, other, you know, I don't know how many people are in the company, a couple people in the company, maybe somebody that interacts with customers mm-hmm. and don't make them responsible for the presentation, but in, in essence, write them a script or give them a role so that uh, the potential investor knows that it can be articulated. And then that's also impressive from a particular investor that, well, so how much of this company do you own? 
well, I don't have any ownership in it. I get a bonus if we do well every year, but you know, I've been there for two years or so. If there's an employee willing to come in and help that, that entrepreneur explain their business, I think it's even a greater hook for an investor. Um, and the other thing that I've noticed um, being on the angel investor side is one thing that I've always intrigued me is the passion of the individual for that business. They may not be very well spoken. Mm-hmm. I can, well, I think a lot of people cut through all that. They want to know, is this guy real? Is right. he passionate about what he's doing? Is he going to be there with the ship sinking? You know, what's the story? So mm-hmm. my advice would be gut it up, show your passion. Right. And at some point you're going to have to learn how to do all this stuff. And, you know, m- most people, when you get them to, to put down in writing or to verbalize, how many times have you failed at trying to get this product done? And what, what avenues did you go down and fail? Getting them to talk about the failures probably gets them even more passionate about where they are with the product today. It's okay to fail. Everybody's got to fail. Well, especially you get to the angel investors because they're typically the kind of person that has failed a bunch of times. Right. My experience with that, they like they like to see that you've skinned your knees. And, and if you want to convince them of here's why I think I can take advantage of the market now, you know, if you've never if you've never failed, if you've never tried it, then they're automatically going to discount it. Okay. Um, let's talk about make the board. Uh, any business should. Uh, can you think of a business that doesn't need a good board? No. Um, but I would challenge, is it really a board or is it a team of advisors? What would you prefer, team of advisors or a board? If I'm, a sole, if, if I'm running a dry cleaning shop and it's me and it's my money, then I would, I would make sure that I had advisors. Maybe, a, you know, you don't need a board. Yeah. If, you, if you're going to bring in investors, that's, maybe that's the key. When you bring in investors, then you need a board. What do those board members need to look like? Um, I think that whatever weaknesses the owner or the technical person or whoever's got the drive and, and the idea, I think they need to assess their weaknesses and they need to find board members who can, who can uh, supplement where they're weak. So if they're not good, you know, well, I don't understand numbers and, you know, and I, I understand what you tell me that I need to under, know where my cash is being invested and how my business creates cash. But sometimes I get confused by that. Well, then you need to have someone who understands financials. And, and listen to them. Um, you know, we, on a previous show, we talked about how a small business owner, um, he got to kind of break through his own ego and realize that I don't know everything. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of times you, you run into people that think they know everything, but they need to break through all that and say, it's okay to get help. That's why, you know, when, when you call it a board of directors, I would almost rather call it a board of advisors, even if legally, you know, it has to be called directors. But because, again, these people should know parts of the market or the business that you're weak at. And, and first, you should teach them your passion for the business, but then you have to be willing to ask them questions and take their, their criticism as well as their advice. All right, and then... Uh uh, another thing I want to talk about is the role of the CFO. Before we do that, I'd like everybody to know this is On the Money, brought to you by Embassy National Bank. We're here with Ed Cordell. He's a uh, outsourcing CFO. Uh, he's built strategies, teams, and value. He's been with a lot of good growth companies and has given us a lot of great advice as to uh, 
how to grow that small business thing to, to look out for. Um, Ed, talk about this, the role of the CFO in a growth company. Okay. Are, are they an accountant? Are they a controller? What do they do? I, I think if you looked over history, you would say a CFO is typically a, a, an accountant and, and responsible for making sure that all the regulatory filings and the financial statements uh, that you are uh, meeting your requirements in the bank loan documents, let's say. But I think that role has evolved in the last 10, 15 years or so, and the better CFOs are business partners, which, of course, we, you know, that's self-serving. We want to be business partners. But I think that the, the best definition I find is that you're an interpreter. Okay, we love numbers. We love to get into the, to the inner workings and follow the cash and, and, you know, understand what the margins are and so forth. But it's one thing to know that. It's, it's a different skill set to take that information and be able to talk to marketing and salespeople and R&D people and production people and give it to them in actionable clauses. In fact, one of my old bosses told me that the um, accountants that he has, including myself, were some of the best salesmen he had ever met. Mm-hmm. And that is because we got to pull all this stuff together and sell people on what we're saying. Right. I thought that was a really interesting comment. And the fact that he that he understood and wanted you to sell. Because yeah. I think too many times people look at accountants or CFOs and they say, well, just give me the numbers. You know, I'll figure it out once you give it to me. And that's, that's only 30% of the job. Um, well, this is a really good conversation. Um, a lot of things to talk about. If you're if you're a, a growth company, you've got something that you really like. Talk about the advantages, disadvantages of patenting and trademarking. Mm. So that so one other thought that came to mind in terms of the changing role of a CFO is that of risk assessment advisor. Okay, so again, when you're talking about patents and trademarks, part of that is creating more value with your business or with your idea. So, you know, you want to be patented first. You want to protect your trademarks. You want to make sure that whatever uniqueness that you have found to deliver to a market, you have a legal stance to protect. Because especially if you're a small company. So some of the companies I've worked for, you know, is $10, $20 million in revenue just getting started. You're dealing in a market with billion-dollar companies. And so they have large legal departments. Uh, you want to make sure that you have solid ground because you can't afford to spend the money on attorneys that they can. And so you, you want to get there first. Is there a risk of throwing it out there in the marketplace and have someone run with it and then not be able to protect it? Absolutely. Yes. And uh, that's why uh, in, in the networking that I've done, I've met a couple of physicians that have product ideas first question I ask them are, are you having people, are you having advisors sign non-disclosure agreements every time you talk to them before you tell them what your idea is? And the answer has, needs to always be yes. Um, I've always thought, and, and, and I, I, I like what you're saying. I've always thought that uh, it might be better to get something in the market quick mm -hmm. and patent later, as opposed to spending your money on the patent and not getting out in the market and make some money. But it depends, doesn't it? it I think it depends, um, you know, how, how market timing sensitive is your product. And, you know, in today's market, and especially if you're talking about apps or online, that might be true. 
and uh, and I'm not familiar enough with kind of the patent and trademark landscape of of cloud-based type solutions as I would bricks and mortar and and uh, and hard products. Yeah, uh, that's another thing that has come to mind that I that I wanted to talk to you about was um, uh, what kind of businesses are hot right now in terms of uh, startups and growth and and uh, profit margins. In in my area of health and medical, it is um, uh, service health services. So uh, services to senior citizens. Uh, you know, you, you've got the traditional nursing homes, but you know, you take it from the nursing homes, and you have a lot of people who are uh, older with health problems that are still trying to live at home. So there's a lot of home home health delivery services that are. Uh, that are growing and being absorbed by larger companies and mm-hmm. put into a process. Mm-hmm. I think those are a lot. And then also, uh, and it's a broad market, but health IT. So, you know, delivering your, I mean, each person has their own health makeup. Each person, you know, should know their blood pressure, their, uh, you know, what their latest blood tests are, you know, all that. I think we're heading into a market where it doesn't matter which doctor, hospital, or provider you go to, you're going to be taking that information with you, whether mm-hmm. it's in a chip or whatever. And, and I think anything dealing with providing that information to the health care consumer, which is a different word than we used 20 years ago, it's no longer the, um, you know, it, it, it's your health care, you need to own it, you need to control it, versus uh, I'm going to go to the doctor and do whatever he tells me to do. Um, you mentioned uh, apps. Seems like everybody wants to create an app. Is that really a lucrative business? Uh, it must be because I think I hear stories that I'm just shocked at. You got to be pretty creative, I would think. You've got to be creative, um, but once you, but think of a marketplace. You know, we in bricks and mortar and retail shops. We think of how many cars drive by that dry cleaner. Well, when you go online, I mean, it's how many people are in the world. You know, how many people have access to the cloud? So the uniqueness of driving people to your service, app, website, whatever it happens to be, is is the unlimited amount of potential that you have there. Have you ever had anybody get selected to be in Play Store, Google's Play Store? No. I don't know how to do that either. That's an interesting... We'll find out. (laughs) Well, I've always thought, you know, oh, that's a dumb idea to do an app for. But Mm -hmm. I saw someone created an app, and all it does is send a poke to somebody, (laughs) and it's worth $10 million now? I mean, it's just the dumbest, craziest things. And I guess if there are enough people that want it, they... You know, I don't know if they, they haven't even made any money yet, but. but. But somebody thought that would be a good idea, tried it out on a few hundred people, and it took off. Yeah. So, you know, that's everything we've talked about on starting a company is what's the market, you right. know, or, and sometimes the market becomes I was playing around with this or I had a hobby that was in this regard. And the next thing you know, it's, it's uh, become a real business. And, uh, and I guess you have to, a lot of inventors and creators are maybe too smart for their own good. So even though you might think, oh, this is a dumb idea, I mean, it might sell. Who knows? Might as well throw it out there, right? I think that's where uh, inventors or people who are creative like that 
you know, you need to have a uh, you need to have a group of friends. You need to have a group of and whether they're friends, advisors, um, you know, I can't tell you the number of groups that meet for coffee to share ideas. Whether you're talking business ideas or you're just talking about, uh, you know, I need help straightening some you know some thoughts out. So why wouldn't you, if you were an inventor, mm-hmm. create a group of people who have different backgrounds to say, I have a couple of ideas I want to run past you. All right, and then. Uh don't have a lot of time left, but I do want to ask you this question. What role, given all the ways to find money, uh, friends and family, angel investors, uh, crowdfunding, what role does the bank play these days? I think the bank plays a, the role. The bank is, is a, um, uh, a proven investor and a proven model. Okay, so... As we said earlier, you know, someone may have an idea to grow their business that doesn't include uh, bankable assets. So maybe the regulatory environment won't allow you to put the money into it. But you see so many different businesses and you see kind of what the market's doing and you know whether the market's growing or contracting or, you know, in different areas that I think including a banker as a business advisor is probably a lot smarter today than ever before, even if you've got fewer, you know, even if the ability to lend in certain situations are more curtailed. I was uh, talking the other day with uh, an investment group who wanted to borrow money and use their investments as collateral. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to know whether I'd be interested in doing that. And I had to walk them through the process of making themselves bankable. And I thought, well, you know, every small company ought to sit down and look at what make what can make me bankable? Because mm-hmm. at some bank debt is still some of the cheapest debt. Um, you can get tied up a little bit with it, but it's still the cheapest debt. And um, you know, just the whole process of figuring out what makes you what would make you bankable would be a good exercise to go through. So there are a number of things that every small business person should should be looking at in the future. You know, where are my future customers going to come from? Where's the market going? What happens when I get ready to sell or retire? Who, who are the target people, whether it's family or other businesses to sell out to? Mm-hmm. And probably one on that list would be, what are the things that I need to do to make sure I have access to capital? Mm-hmm. Um, well, this has been a, um, a, uh, a really good discussion, Ed, and I appreciate you being here. Why I'm going to give you a, a chance to kind of summarize everything, and then we'll mm-hmm. close for the day. Okay. Um, well, I, I think the summary and, and a lot of things that I've heard lately have been, uh, you know, people sharing their experiences and sharing their what they feel has led to some of their success. And so, uh, you know, being able to whether it's a company that's 100 million or 200 million or a couple of million, um, you know, I think it all comes down to knowing your business, being passionate about it and finding out what those key metrics are. So, um, you know, we, we all are busy. We all have to make priorities every day. So I would just challenge every small business owner or medium business size owner, know what your top six are and and think about those on a regular basis. Track them, forecast them. Measure them. Measure them, analyze them. How can you make them all better? Right. That's And then communicate all that to your employees. We didn't even talk about the employees. Um, and the other thing I want to kind of wrap up with is, and, th- and thanks again, Ed, for being here, is we always keep, in this show, we always keep coming back to that customer. Uh-huh. And that customer is the individual that pays you money. Um, and, boy, it can, the customer is everywhere, isn't it? 
And guess what? They also talk about you when you're not there. Whether you want to hear it or not. Yes. Yeah. And they also, they've got mechanics they can use to talk about you everywhere, don't they? Yes, they do. Yeah. Uh, we've talked a little bit about that, too, but uh, over the over the last couple of months. But, Ed, thanks so much for being here. Uh, this is uh, On the Money, brought to you by Embassy National Bank. I'm Joe Moss, and uh, that concludes uh, this week's show, and we look forward to talking with you next time. Have a good day, everybody, and be careful out there. Mm-hmm.